It was in 2006 that I first met Andrew Mann. I was asked by Myrna Gregory to take a mission team up to Monhaven, New York to do missions. And I said, I don't know anything about New York. And I said, I will go if you will go with me and help me in leading that. So Myrna and I partnered together that first year in uh, going to uh, Graffiti 2 Ministries. That's where I first met Andrew. And he introduced me to something that totally changed my life and my ministry. It was upside down ministry and how you do that in your community to meet needs of people uh, from all spectrums of life. And throughout the last 16 years, he has been my mentor in that. He was 23 years old at the time, and I was 52. I can learn something from these young folks. And I think you're going to be blessed today to hear from Andrew Mann. And I challenge this church to really listen to what he has to say and how we can impact Dothan, Alabama for Jesus Christ. But Andrew, come and talk with us. Well, thank you, Ron. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 3 through 6 this morning. I'm going to bring you greetings from Graffiti 2 Baptist Church in the snowy South Bronx of New York City. Uh, Steve Mounts was showing me around yesterday and um, took me to lunch, and he apologized for the cold down here. I think my foot is, my, foot, my, my car is buried in probably about five feet of snow right now, so somehow I'm going to have to dig that out when I get back to New York. I serve as a sin relief missionary uh, with the North American Mission Board, with my primary focus being the pastor and director of Graffiti 2 Ministries there in a neighborhood called Mott Haven. Now, if you're paying attention, you might be thinking, well, you seem to be an unlikely person pastoring a church with an unlikely name in an unlikely place. I'm an unlikely person to be in the South Bronx of New York City. I'm from uh, Southeast Missouri. I'll tell you more of my story in just a little bit. But when I first moved into my apartment there on Cypress Avenue, about two or three weeks later, there was a meeting of the Tenants Association complaining about the undercover cop that was moved into the building. You know, at first I thought, you know, how in the world am I undercover? But then since then I've realized that if you wanted to be undercover, a pastor is a good way to do it because people tell you everything. I'm sometimes hearing things like, no, you don't have to tell me everything that you've been doing. Uh, one time I was sitting on a stoop with a friend. He, he's a drug dealer, and I was sitting there listening to some of his woes and some of the things that were on his heart. He had recently had a friend that was shot and killed. And as we were sitting there, a, a young woman comes up to ask him if he had any weed for sale. And he said, no, don't you see I'm sitting here talking to the pastor? And without missing a beat, she turned and looked at me. She said, do you have any weed for sale? <laughs> that, that's a different way to fund ministry, I guess. <laughs> I'm an unlikely person, and I pastor a church with an unlikely name, Graffiti. 
Now, graffiti, we are graffiti too, but there's a graffiti that we now call one that's on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. They've been there since 1974. Actually started by a team from Sanford University uh, that took a mission group, group up there for several years, and we kind of had a Baptist outpost for ministry there uh, in the Tompkins Square Park area. Eventually, a church was planted there, a ministry uh, was developed. The pastor and director of that, Taylor Field and Susan Field, his wife, led that for a number of years. Uh, people often say, well, why? Why is it called graffiti? That's an unlikely name. Uh, they had a wall that was covered, as you can guess, in graffiti. And they would have mission teams come in and they would paint that wall. And you know, about a week or two after the mission team went home, the wall would be covered in graffiti again. So they did that several times. And one, I would say spirit-led group said, what are we doing? This is a waste of time, waste of money, waste of resources. So they decided to do something different. They painted the wall. But across the top, they put the word graffiti in big letters with an arrow pointing down, inviting people to tag the wall with graffiti. But something changed in the nature of that graffiti. Instead of being some negative things and kind of the typical graffiti, it started to be encouraging things. And people put Bible verses and, and things that were uplifting. And the people in the neighborhood started calling it the graffiti church. And the name has stuck ever since. So it's an unlikely name. I'm an unlikely person. But we might be in what you would consider an unlikely place. See, years ago, uh, graffiti decided they wanted to begin some new works in some of the most challenging areas to have ministry and to grow churches. We wanted the difficult assignment, the place where there were hard circumstances. And Mott Haven is a neighborhood in the South Bronx that some might not only say is an unlikely place, but might even call it an unlikable place. You're here in Dothan, Alabama. Of course, Dothan is very different than the South Bronx of New York City. First of all, just number of people. There's a lot of people, right? New York City, 8 million people in the city itself, 25 million people in the metropolitan area. And our little two-square-mile area, there are 90,000 people. Steve told me there's 70,000 people in Dothan, so we've got more in our little two square miles than you do in all of Dothan. And if you're like me, sometimes you just need to get away from people, and in the South Bronx, it's hard to get away from people. A lot of people. Another thing you might guess about our community that some might call it unlikable is there's a lot of rats. Yeah. That's New York City. You've probably seen it on all the late-night TV shows that shoot from New York. Lots of rats everywhere. Um, everybody has a rat story. I have a number in my, my kind of pouch I could, I could pull out right now, but uh, many people might know or remember my dog, Proof. I, I had a dog that worked with me in ministry uh, for a number of years in our ministry center, and I remember one day I, I was walking down the street with her late at night, probably 11, 11.30 at night. I was on the phone with my mom. And let me just tell you, when something goes awry, you really don't want to be on the phone with your mom. That's just not good for your mom's heart. Um, and I was on the phone with her, just chatting, walking my dog proof, and all of a sudden I heard a thud. And I turned, I looked, and I said, Mom, hold on, I got to go, I'll call you back in a second. And right where I had been standing, there lay a rat. And I was just really puzzled because it wasn't there when I walked by. And so I looked at this rat and I started kind of doing some figuring, looked up. And I realized there was a ledge six stories above me and I saw another rat run across. And I'm not so sure what happened. I don't know if it was a kamikaze rat aiming for me or if that rat had some sort of death wish. I was just imagining the newspaper headlines the next morning when it said South Bronx pastor killed by flying rat. It's not the way you want to go. There's a lot of people, a lot of rats there, um, and what some might figure would be a lot of problems. 
Mott Haven is an under-resourced community of need. It certainly has challenges. You saw in the video about risk factors that play into life there. And later this afternoon, we can share a training about how we can minister in communities of need and understand them a little bit better. But I also want to share with you a slightly different perspective. Yeah, there's a lot of problems, but there's also a different story that's woven throughout our community. Mott Haven's a beautiful place. It's a neighborhood where people take care of people. I, I sometimes say it's a little bit like Mr. Rogers' neighborhood, just R-rated. It's a place where people have changed my life, shaped my faith, where people call me pastor even though they may never walk through the door of our church. So yes, I'm an unlikely person pastoring a church with an unlikely name in an unlikely place. But you know, that's what I love about the gospel of Jesus. It's really for all the unlikely people in this world. It's only by God's grace that we are saved for his glory and our good. And, and this is a message that goes throughout Scripture. And the passage we're going to look at today is, is certainly written by an unlikely person. And I, I pray that as we read this and we figure out how to apply it to our lives and hear some of the stories of things happening in the Bronx, you'll be able to see how God is you to be in an unlikely person probably to serve in unlikely places. So with that in mind, Philippians chapter one, beginning in verse three, it says this. It'll be on your screen. Every time I think of you, I give thanks to my God. Whenever I pray, I make my request for all of you with joy. For you have been my partners in spreading the good news about Christ from the time you first heard it until now. And I am certain that God, who began the good work within you, will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. So again, this passage, it's an unlikely person. Paul is writing it. He, he's the last person that should be uh, instructing disciples in the church, or if you know his background and his, and his history. So here we have this unlikely person giving us unlikely, or giving us advice on how we can be called to unlikely places. And the very first piece of advice I want you to see is to give thanks. What does he say? He says, every time I think of you, I give thanks. Another place, Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians, always be joyful, never stop praying, be thankful in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you who belong to Christ Jesus. I love the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. You know, all he had was a couple of sardines and a few bagels, right? And, and somehow he was able to feed all of those people. But I don't know if you've ever noticed the very first thing he did when he had so little in his hands. In Matthew 14, verse 19, it says, Jesus took the five loaves and two fish, looked up toward heaven, and blessed them. He gave thanks. I'm learning in life to give thanks. And I often learn that from what you might think as unlikely people. You know, if you want to learn to give thanks, don't start by looking at the people who have a lot. Look at people who have very little. My friend Frankie is one that doesn't seem to have a lot. Frankie's life is one of extremes. He struggles with addiction. He struggles with homelessness. Often his pendulum will swing back and forth. One moment you'll see him cursing someone out on the street that bothered him, and the next moment he's nursing a pigeon back to health. 
Frankie comes in and out of our ministry center frequently. He's often on the corner and I'm talking to him. And, and, and one day, not so long ago, he, he came rushing in because he had a stuffed animal he had found out on the street. And he was so happy and thankful for that. Another time, he comes rushing in with, with a, a new piece of luggage to help him get things around. He was so excited about that. About a year ago, we, we were shoveling snow. I was out early in the morning, about 6.30 in the morning, shoveling snow. And let me tell you, I just hate snow. I, I, you say this is cold. I hate snow, and I've got to go back tomorrow, like I said, and dig my car out. And it's all right to hate something like that. I'm just telling you. I, I guess I need to apply my own message. Give thanks in all circumstances. So, uh, Holy Spirit, work on me on that one, I guess. Um, but I was out shoveling snow that morning, and Frankie came up. He grabbed a shovel. He worked with me about an hour out there digging our sidewalk out so everybody could get, get by safely and come into the church. And when he left, he went up the block exclaiming, I feel so good, I helped my friend Andrew. Frankie helps me learn how to give thanks. But the next thing I want us to see from this passage, it says, every time I think of you, I give thanks to my God. And what does it say? Whenever I pray. I often say... Ministry would be easy if it wasn't for people. And the pastors laugh, they get it. <laughs> we face a lot of challenges. A lot of challenges that come from people's life. Right now, I have people I love and care for who are dealing with issues in court, toxic relationships, unplanned pregnancies and homelessness and struggling with mental health. There's challenges. And to be honest, sometimes I just don't know how to pray. You ever, you ever pray and you start trying to tell God what he should be doing and you realize you really don't know what he needs to be doing. I've been encouraged recently or learned from the story that of the man, the rich man that comes up to Jesus. He had all kinds of money, but he seemed to not have enough. Right? And he, he asked Jesus, well, what do I do to inherit eternal life? And, and Jesus talked to him about um, and making sure he follows the laws and all these things. And it's clear this man had religion because he had done all those things his entire life. He had been the, in the right place at the right time doing the right thing. And so Jesus went on. He said, you know what? Sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And so at that, the man turned away. As I've thought about his response and Jesus' response to him, there's a couple things that stick out. One is that, that for us to inherit eternal life, for us to be people that have the ear of God's, we have to be able to care for those that, that are less fortunate, for those that are in poverty, for those that are poor. In Proverbs 20 verse, 21 verse 13 says, those who shut their ears to the cries of the poor will be ignored in their own time of need. And this isn't just one passage in scripture, this comes again and again and again and again. That the salvation that works into us leads to works that bless other people. There's something else I noticed in this response that Jesus has to this man. If you think about, what did he lack? He certainly didn't lack money. He didn't lack religion. As I've thought about it, 
I realized he lacked problems that only God could solve. Not by his own work, not by his own effort, not by his own means, but to have something that only God can solve. You know, one of the lessons that Jesus taught us in the Beatitudes, he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When that we have the gospel message to know that we're sinners and there is nothing, we're helpless and hopeless to do anything about it unless if we have one that we turn to that saves us. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So here's the prayer I'm learning to pray when I don't know what to pray. God, I need you. Lord, help. That passage, it says, whenever I pray, and when I ask you, whenever you pray, what do you pray? Having a humble heart and saying, Lord, I need you. God, help is a good place to start. But I also want to encourage you to pray for those that don't know the Lord Jesus. I used to have a long list, and to this day have a long list of dozens, if not hundreds, of names of people that are on my heart. I remember years ago, uh, there was a big emphasis for who's your one, and I was kind of prideful and egotistical about it. Who's your one? What do you mean, who's your one? Who's my hundred, you know, as if that was some badge of honor. But God convicted my heart about that and decided I was going to start praying for one Focus on praying for one person that would, 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 would hear and receive the gospel message. And the person that came to mind for me was a young man I've known for 15 years or so. His name is Joe. And Joe's a young man that uh, has grew, grown up around me, uh, around our ministry, around our church with different things. And then he had a turning point. I remember one night I was out, again, late. You know, you're pastor of the Bronx. You go out late sometimes. And I was out, I was out walking around, and, and there was a big party out on the street and I remember seeing him there, his eye catching my eye, and my eye catching his eye. And I just felt, oh, man, depleted inside that he was where he was doing what he was doing. And he had a long path in history, I tell you. He, he hustled, he sold drugs, he did all kinds of things. He, he, he played with various religions and trying to find some sort of meaning. But about two years ago, I started praying focused on his salvation. Now, do I really understand how this works? Do you, is it really because I'm praying that God's going to save something? Surely God's not a God like that, right? The God works in all kinds of ways. He, he involves us. He invites us to be involved in what he's doing for our benefit, not just for the benefit of those that, that aren't saved. But I'll tell you, over these past two years, I've seen how God has worked in Joe's life. And that picture there is a few months ago. He's now a corrections officer upstate in New York. And although he hasn't professed faith wholeheartedly yet, he is asking questions and his heart is soft and open to what God's doing. So whenever you pray, pray with a humble heart knowing you need God, but also want to challenge you to have one for whom you pray for salvation. The next word I notice in that passage is the word partner. It said, for you have been my partner's I think one of the most beautiful words for us as Baptists, the best of what we do, I think, is found in the word cooperation. We cooperate together as brothers and sisters for the sake of God's kingdom. You know, through cooperation, we're able to do so much more together. And I want to thank First Baptist Church for 
your giving and your support of the cooperative program, the Annie Armstrong Easter offering, the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, these things make a difference. As I mentioned, I'm a sin relief missionary with the North American Mission Board. I don't know if you knew that this past year, over $66.5 million was given through the Annie Armstrong Easter offering. And that directly affects people on the ground who are living and serving and reaching our nation with the gospel. In North American Mission Board, there's, there's three arms to what we do. There's evangelism, trying to equip churches with evangelism resources so that you're able to share Christ right where you are. And then we have Sin Network, uh, which is church planning all across, the, all across North America and Puerto Rico and Canada. And then I work with Sin Relief. In Sin Relief, we do compassion ministry. And this is actually the first time in our Southern Baptist Convention that the International Mission Board and the North American Mission Board are working together cooperatively. So Sin Relief is an international organization. We, we have missionaries that are overseas, but also missionaries here in North America. And our primary emphasis is to help churches and pastors be able to, to do a few things for compassion ministry. We, we want to see people strengthening communities. We want to see people caring for refugees. We want to see people that are protecting children and families through fostering and adoption. We want to see people that are fighting human trafficking and responding to crisis, disaster relief. And one of the primary ways we're doing that is through ministry centers across North America. There's a map that will come on your screen. You'll see there's ministry centers. The closest one to you all is probably in Clarkston or Valdosta. We have a work down there too. Uh, it's in New Orleans. But we, in the South Bronx, we are a sin relief ministry center. And our role is to execute local ministry and to have people come and learn and, and, and participate with us and be equipped and be taught principles and best practices so you all can do the exact same thing right where you are. So thank God that we can cooperate as Southern Baptists. It makes a difference. And I know sometimes you may not know exactly how it's making a difference, but, but for example, many people have heard about that apartment fire in the Bronx and people have asked me, well, was that your neighborhood? It wasn't our neighborhood. It was, it was a few neighborhoods away. In New York, you, you can be close, but a world away. And so we didn't have any direct connections to that. But what we've been able to do as Sin Relief is be able to gather churches and pastors and ministers that have direct hands right in that apartment building. And we're equipping them with resources and training on how they can minister to the victims of that fire. And we're actually able to give a grant for disaster relief to help people directly that have been affected, losing lost ones or losing loved ones and, and, and apartment and materials and things like that. So it makes a difference. But I also want to thank you all, First Baptists, for the way you specifically work with graffiti too. You know, our work, it, it utilizes partnerships we pray are mutually beneficial for our local work and also for the churches we serve alongside. We have people that pray for us. And I'll tell you, you can find all kinds of ways to pray for our ministry. You visit our website, our Facebook, our, our TikTok now. We have all these ways that you can see what's going on. But I just want to let you know, my email is my name, Andrew, at graffiti2ministries.org. If you ever send me an email saying, hey, how can I pray for you today? You're going to get a lot more unfiltered response to know exactly the things on our heart right now at this moment. We thank God for churches that pray for us, 
that give financially to support our work. Our local work needs the support of churches that are giving specifically to what we're doing. And thank God for people who come and serve with us. As you heard Ron talk about a mission team coming up this summer, you could listen to me for two hours, which I promise it won't go two hours today. But you're not going to understand it until you come and see. I thank God for partners. Another word I notice in this passage is the word good news. You've been my partners in spreading the good news about Christ. We have a phrase around our ministry. We often say, people can't hear the gospel if they don't see the gospel. People can't hear the good news if they don't see the good news. In an under-resourced community of need like ours there in the South Bronx, our way of showing people the good news is programs that are going to provide a safe environment for people so they can have holistic enrichment that will foster meaningful relationships. Some examples, you see a picture of some kids and teenagers there. This is our program for children, youth, and families. And this goes year-round, uh, uh, and we, we have it for all ages, uh, beginning in first grade all the way up through young adults. And it doesn't just involve the kids, it involves the entire family, the parents involved as well. We also have a workforce development program. And several components of that include uh, artisans that make some goods. There you see Millie uh, working on, on some of the items that we're able to market and sell. We have an ESL class, English as a Second Language, uh, an adult learning center where we're teaching literacy and, and a get-to-work program, people that are looking for work. We have them come to us. We put a little money in their pocket as they're working with us and coach them to get a new job. We also have ministry to the marginalized. This is ministry that reaches out to the addicted and homeless population in our community. Uh, our big emphasis with that is we don't want to do grab and go. We want to do stop and care. Grab and go focuses on the many, whereas stop and care focuses on the one. How can we focus on this one person and make sure they feel dignified and are treated with love and respect and we can build a relationship so that we have opportunities to share the gospel? I always talk about the power of the open door. For us, it's not just about what happens on Sundays, it's what happens between Sundays. And for us to have our door literally open, unless there's two feet of snow on the ground, we have the door open for people to be able to walk in throughout the week and, and just the power of having that open, inviting people to have a place to go. And then we do community outreach, and there's all kinds of forms of that, everything from a three-on-three -three basketball tournament to back-to-school bash and the summer camps that your team will be participating with this summer. These are all evangelism tools. They're just methods, because it's not programs that change people, it's people that change people. Specifically, people that have the hope of Jesus in their life that are willing to show that to other people and share it with other people as they serve. We often call this ministry strategy upside down. You see, we don't start with church and have church grow faithful people and faithful people go out and do ministry. We turn that upside down. We say, you know what? Begin with ministry. Meet the need first. And as you're doing that, share the gospel and you'll see faith emerge. 
and those faithful people become the church. About a month ago, I was needing to write a little report for um, reflecting on our past year, and I turned to a young man that was sitting next to me. His name's Julius, and I said, Julius, I'm kind of stuck. I've got a white page in front of me. How does G2 make a difference? And without missing a beat, he turned to me and says, G2 saves lives. Now, I have to admit, um, when I hear things like that, I, I confess that more days than not, it doesn't feel like we're saving lives. Few moments feel life-changing in the mundane and all the challenges and the frustrations and the things that come your way, but Julius said this because it saved his. I've known Julius for 15 years or so, and he used to stand across the street on the corner with a bunch of other guys and known him and his brother and um, just had a relationship for a long time. And uh, about a year and a half ago, he walked into the church. He was really concerned for his brother who struggles with alcohol and concerned for his friends. He said, Andrew, I need to save them. How do I save them? He said, Julius, before you think about that, you first need to be saved. And in that moment, was able to share the gospel with him and He made a profession of faith and prayed and started a new life. And I'll tell you, often that happens, and it's not the trajectory trajectory you often pray for. All right, sometimes it's it's slow going and a long process, but I tell you what, with Julius, he just instantly started making moves and different changes, and he started attending our Bible studies, and he'd start start regurgitating scripture to me. I mean, like regurgitating. It feels like he was just kind of spitting it up because he was consuming it so much. Like, I'd be on the phone with him, and all of a sudden, he'd be talking about the book, book of Joel, and I'm like, where are you getting this from? It was just all over him, and he started our first steps discipleship. We do it one-on-one with people and walk them through some lessons, and then he joined our membership class, and then he got baptized, and now he's leading in the church. That's what the gospel can do. Next, I want us to notice the word work. Work. Ministry is work. Life is work. One of the things I've learned, though, is before I really focus on what God's going to do through my life, I need to allow him to work in my life. As noted earlier, I'm a um, product of Southeast Missouri. It's where my family, much of my family still lives. When you live in small town Missouri, small town anywhere, often you might find yourself navigating three circles. One circle was my family, another circle was my church, another circle was my school. And often those three overlap. And when I was young, I I couldn't speak very well. The fact that I'm speaking right now is a miracle in itself. I had problems, all kinds of speech impediments. And I remember I was in the line at church on a Wednesday night with my mom to get a meal. I was a young little guy, and she was talking to our school principal. Uh, And Miss Bryant, Miss Bryant was a wonderful woman. And I remember my mom talking to her, and what they were talking about was whether I needed to be tutored, right? But about the same time, we had a miniature dachshund named Skipper that my parents were talking about getting neutered. I went home that night with tears in my eyes. Mom, are you going to neuter me? 
Sometimes those three overlap with devastating <laughs> effects on a little guy's life. But throughout my childhood and youth, I was a master of religion. I knew all the things I needed to say, all the things I needed to do, not so much to please God, but to please the eyes that were watching me. So I professed my faith, and I got baptized, and I walked down the aisle, and I did RAs and youth group and, and served in leadership roles in the church. There was a point in high school where I felt an overwhelming conviction that I was lost. And if I died at that moment, I was bound for hell. And I gave my life to Christ on my knees, on the bedroom of my house. But you know what I decided to do? I, I wanted to keep that to myself. After all, I already proclaimed that I'm a Christian. I already let people know I don't have to change anything. They think I'm a Christian, so why change anything then? And so I kind of kept going the way I was going. Let me tell you, God works. Because in that story in my life, I, I, I felt like I needed to go to New York to, to have, I was attracted by the bright lights of Broadway, thought I was going to be a professional musician, and, and got involved with a church there called Graffiti, and that planted a seed of calling my life that would start growing and we would be nurtured. And at 23 years old, I began to work in the South Bronx and, and started working and leading and serving and being a missionary there. But remember, not focus on what God's going to do through you, but what God wants to do in you. And through all of those experiences, God was really kind of knocking at me. I knew that I spent too much of my life consumed with what other people thought and not consumed enough with what God thought. So as a pastor and a missionary for years in the South Bronx, I went forward in our own church service one day and said, I need to be baptized to get this right. God does things in us. And I'm learning as we're open to him doing things in us. We can start seeing things happen through us. The greatest joys and challenges of my life are the mentoring relationships I have with quite a few young men and young women there's a few of their pictures up here on the screen. Um, I, I have some gray hair in my beard. They have names. Yeah. And as a master of religion, I have to tell you, it's really to, easy to be more focused on the outside than the inside. Each of them have various struggles. One of them struggling with mental stability right now and homelessness. Another's mom is the last stages of advanced metastatic disease and probably will die any day now. That same young person has dealt with court battles and devastating losses from all variety of things. Another one of those young men is, um, has a newborn baby and trying to figure out how does he reconcile his faith with uh, a girlfriend that's not a believer and challenging to raise a family like that. And another person there is maybe bound um, overseas with some of this um, debacle that's going on in Ukraine, depending on what our government does. Another young man there is, um, was released out of jail after five years of being incarcerated, and over the past year has really had a hard time getting his wheels moving in the right direction. But just this past week, I've seen and heard a number of encouraging things come from him. 
I know I've got to focus on the inside, not the outside. And something I'm learning often about God's work on the inside is often it is slow. But his work is best. Just be patient. You need patience and you need endurance. Because what Paul says there is, he says, his work until it is finally finished. And we learn that if you want to see things change, you have to wait around long enough. It takes time. This summer, I was having lunch with somebody that was visiting up at a little Mexican restaurant in our neighborhood, and as we were leaving, um, my friend got in an Uber, and I looked across the street, and there was a young man from our block that's often out in the corner. He's a kind of young urban rapper that's uh, got quite a bit of notoriety around us, and I noticed him sitting over on, on a stoop and seemed out of place. This isn't where he normally hangs out, and so I walked over and sat next to him, and uh, we, we would say we, we were chopping it up with each other, and, and so sitting there, and we were talking, and he started sharing some things, and, and I have six little words I'll often ask someone, and you can put this in your tool belt, just how can I pray for you, right? How can I pray for you? Ask, ask somebody that question this week, and take a moment to listen, because after I asked him that question, we sat there for about 45 minutes, listening to his joys and his struggles and the things that are heavy on his heart. He was dealing with a court issue, dealing with a gun and drugs and things like that. And I've been in court with him since and took some time to pray with him. There at the end, I just said, hey, you know, don't be shy in asking me for help. And I was humbled by what he said. And I'll tell you, encourage. And I'll tell you, missionaries, they need encouragement because it can get long and dark sometimes. He said, of course, Andrew, your family to the whole block. It takes time. It's going to take time in his life. Oh, I pray for an instantaneous change, but I know I need to be patient and allow God to finish his good work. And we say that we've got to be light, not lightning. We can't be there and gone in a flash and sometimes call it damage. That we need to be like a city street light that is quietly blessing a neighborhood day in and day out for decades. And we recognize that we do this looking forward to the day when Christ Jesus returns. I love Matthew chapter 25. It's all these parables that are talking about his return, talking about what it's going to be like and how we need to be ready. And, you know, parables are things that kind of get to your heart, not so much to your head. So you have to give them time to work. And you could read Matthew 25 and just let it soak into your life. And there's different ways he explains it. There's bridesmaids in that chapter, and there's sheep, and there's goats, and all kinds. I mean, it sounds like a crazy wedding, right? Um, but, but there's all these ways that he's describing what it's like when he will return. And I just want to end with this simple thought. He doesn't divide people into missionaries and non-missionaries. He doesn't divide people into those who have and those who don't. He divides us into sheep and goats. Those he knows and those he doesn't. The bridesmaids who kept their lamps ready and those who didn't.
which will you be? Dear God, I thank you for this time together. Thank you for your calling on my life. The blessing that it is, even in the face of challenges and difficulties and setbacks and hurdles, God. I thank you for this church and I pray for all that are here to not just let words fly by their head, but Lord, they'll sink into their, sink into their heart and their soul. God, I pray each person, every one of us, will have wisdom to know what you want us to do and give us boldness and courage to take the next step. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.